Each you remain standing for a moment as the choir exits, and I hope, I pray that you are planning to be back tonight for the uh, presentation of the full musical, and I, I know that you're going to be so blessed by that. We welcome those of you online today, those of you on Jack's Country, and those of you in Building A. We're glad that you're with us this morning, but uh, join me, if you would, for a moment of prayer just as we continue. Father, today we are grateful. We're grateful that we can stand for this moment in the presence of the King. Because we know you're with us today, Lord. We know you are here. We know you are in us. We know you are walking with us. And you will never leave us nor forsake us. And we are so very grateful, Lord, for your promise and your presence and the reality of Emmanuel, God with us, who though he was not born in a palace, was born a king. And today we bow with the angels, with the wise men, with the shepherds, remembering again the manger and the place of his humility where he came onto this planet to be God with us. May that reality seep deeply into our being today, into our spirits. May we know your presence. May we know the joy that that brings. And may we bring every worry, every care, every concern, every heartache, every heartbreak into your presence this morning, our Lord and our Savior, Emmanuel. For it is in Jesus' name that we pray. And all of God's people said, Amen, amen. Well, hopefully you are getting closer to getting into the Christmas spirit, whatever that looks like to you, whatever that seems to be to uh, so many different people. We have so many different opinions of what that's about. But today we are going to just open God's Word together and uh, look at a place that is not an, always a, considered a Christmas text but I, I think it's probably got a lot more to do with Christmas than it does a lot of the other places we sometimes go at this time of year. So 1 John chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched uh, with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest. We have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us that which we have also seen and heard. We proclaim to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. So our Christmas messages, our Christmas series this year has been built around the, the topic, what do we really need for Christmas? What do we really need? Last week we considered that we need a joy. How many of you need some joy today? You need a little, maybe an extra cup of joy 
uh, today. It's just uh, maybe running a little low in your life. But we need joy. We want to we find joy. We look for joy at this time of year at Christmas. Somebody suggested that what we really need for Christmas are shorter sermons. Uh, you're not going to get that wish. That's not happening. I'm sorry. That's not going to happen. Not today. But uh, I, I don't know. Christmas is an odd time of year, really. As we think about spending money, as one person said, we, at Christmas we spend money on people, um, the money we don't have on people that we don't know to impress people that we don't like. So I don't know if that's true for you. Or as one lady learned the hard way, she was going to send out obligatory Christmas cards and she was a little late to the game. So as she ran through a store, she found a box of Christmas cards on sale and there was about 50 in the box and she went home, quickly addressed each envelope and signed her name on the inside of the note, sent it, stuck a stamp on it, put it in the mail, and then just kind of came back home, sat down, just took a breath and picked up one of the leftover cards and opened it up. And it was a beautiful Christmas card. It said Merry Christmas on the front. She opened it on the inside. It said, this is just a little card to say a Christmas gift is on its way. <laughs> so I don't know if you've ever been in that kind of situation or not, but the word of the day is read your Christmas cards before you send them out. That may be a good idea. So, Well, this is not a typical Christmas sermon on the nativity and the shepherds and the angels and the little town of Bethlehem. Those are all incredibly important parts of the story. But what I want to talk about with you today is is the meaning behind those pieces, the meaning behind those stories, the meaning behind those characters in the Christmas story. Uh, we have two extremes that we can go to each Christmas holiday. First, we can go to the extreme of emotionalism and nostalgia. Uh, what do chestnuts roasting on open fires have to do with the coming of the Son of God into the world? Well, I would have to say nothing, nothing. But we get washed away. We get kind of a wash in emotion. Last night I was listening, just walking, listening to an instrumental Christmas song that kind of, you know, one of those songs, you know how some of them do, they just take you back to your childhood. And as I'm walking along, I'm, you know, I mean, I wasn't even thinking about it, but I'm missing my mom and dad. You know, and, 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 and again, that was not a spiritual, that was just an emotional kind of, reaction to that song. There weren't even any words being spoken in the song. It was just music, but it took me back in that emotional journey. Or second, we could go to the other extreme where we drain all the feeling and the emotion out of Christmas, uh, leaving us with some stale theological statements that maybe we nod and agree with, but we don't really understand why they're important. It's like reciting a Christmas carol without the music. So what we want to do is walk a tightrope kind of down the middle between those two extremes. Because the incredible truth of Christmas, Emmanuel, God with us, uh, has captured our hearts and our emotions and our minds for over 2,000 years. And yet you have neighbors. Maybe you have family members, who will decorate their front lawn with a profile of the nativity or a lit up version of the nativity 
and still not be able to tell you exactly why it's important. What does it mean to you that God came to be with us at Christmas? What are you talking about? Oh, the nativity in your front yard. Oh, is that what that means? And that's real stuff. That really happens. And yet there's the other extreme, and that's the people that know the story so well. You could recite it from memory. You can sit down with your children, your grandchildren, and just tell the story and be just spot on biblically as you tell it. But then something else sits in, as Trevin Wax wrote in a new book called The Thrill of Orthodoxy. He said this. I want you to think about this. He said, familiarity, familiarity is the enemy of wonder. Have you lost the wonder of Christmas? Have you really yet given any thought to what am I talking about, singing about, running around about? Why are we doing this? It's so familiar. And that's one of the difficulties actually preaching at Christmas because you know the story. I can't come up here and present something new. I have nothing new to tell you. Many of you can stand up here and do what I'm doing today. You, you know the story. You, you know the words. But too many of us know the story. But maybe it's been a few years since you've sung the music. You know the words. Do you know the song? Does it, does it still make your heart sing? Or are you now just a cynic about it all? So if, if the Christmas story is real then, and this is what I want to just suggest to you today, if, if the Christmas story is true, it's real, it really happened, if the Christmas story is real, it's true, then everything changes, not just December. You know, Christmas changes December. Everything looks different now, doesn't it? When you walk around your neighborhood, drive down the streets, go into stores, started in October, right? But Christmas makes everything look different. It looks different. We don't have cutouts of the city of Bethlehem hanging around here on, on you know, July the 4th. Everything looks different. On December the 26th, those oversized inflatables that pile up in our neighborhoods at Christmas are just going to lie in plastic puddles in the front yard. And nobody's going to bother to plug them in. Because, well, why? Well, because Christmas is over, is it? It's not over if it's real. If Christmas is real, then life and death and eternity are changed. Because, listen, if, if, let me flip this around. If Jesus was not real, if he did not really come as a real flesh and blood baby, through a real lady named Mary, a virgin, who had never known a man, and yet she had a baby, if this is not real, if he was not flesh and blood, 
then God did not come to be with us. And I want you to understand something. If Christmas is not real and Christmas is not true, then nothing else about your faith is true. Nothing. We need to cancel Easter. You need to forget about heaven. If Christmas isn't true, then none of this matters. If Christmas is true, then everything changes. Everything changes. If it's not true, then God did not come to be with us, and everything else is a sham with no more meaning than a flying red-nosed reindeer or a singing snowman. It means nothing. But let's talk about Christmas being true this morning. Emmanuel came to be with us. Emmanuel, one word in Greek, one word in Hebrew, three words in English, God with us. That's what we're talking about this morning. Emmanuel, part of that word uh, is a word that we derive our, our term imminent from, close. God came near at Christmas, as Max Lucado had it. You see, there's a progression in the Bible of how God came to us. In the Old Testament, God was for us, but he terrified us. Whenever people met God, they met God in a moment of terror. They met God as a pillar of fire, or they met God as a, as a fiery presence at the top of Mount Sinai, or they met God as a whirlwind. You ever been in a whirlwind? You ever been in a tornado? You ever been in a hurricane? It's terrifying. This is how God presented himself in the Old Testament. He was for us, but he's terrifying. But in the Gospels, we see God is with us. He became a baby. He became a baby. Now, uh, babies are a lot of things. They're cranky. They're noisy. They're sometimes nasty. But they're not scary. Nobody has ever looked into a baby stroller and said, oh, oh, that's the scariest thing I've ever seen. Nobody's done that. Nobody's afraid of babies. God came as an infant, as a baby, flesh and blood, diaper needing changing, dependent on a teenage girl to feed him. God came to us at Christmas. Isaiah, the prophet, in Isaiah chapter 7, foretold this. He said, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Well, that happened at Christmas hundreds and hundreds of years later. Why is the Bible true? Well, because a statement like that could be made in a period of time when it did not happen. And hundreds of years later, it happened exactly as the Bible said it would. This book, man didn't write this. 
The man that wrote Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, was dead and dust in the grave when it came to pass. A man didn't write this. This is the Word of God, but the Word of God, the Bible tells us, became flesh. Jesus came to us. First of all, let me, let me just give you three words real quick. Jesus came to, you, to us, first of all, physically. Physically. That's what 1 John is emphasizing to us in so many uh, powerful, different ways. That which was from the beginning. That, that, that one that we could not conceive who was from the beginning. The God who was never born. The God who did not have a beginning. That which was from, out of, from the beginning which we have heard. We heard. We, we've seen with our eyes. We have handled. We've touched with our fingertips. That one is the one we're talking about. That life was made manifest. Our eyes were open to see. We were able to see it. And we now testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. Again, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you. That which was from the beginning invisible, in, uh, unapproachable, uh, terrifying, became flesh. Bore our flesh. War. Not, not, a, not a flesh costume. Not a flesh suit that he discarded when he died on the cross and they laid him in the grave. His Flesh that John says we handled, we, we saw him, we, that actually what John is doing here, one Old Testament scholar tells us, is that John was swearing a legal dep deposition. I, I swear, I saw this with my eyes, I heard it with my ears, we touched it, this really happened. That one is the one we proclaim to you. That one is the one who is God in flesh. The word was made flesh, John chapter 1 tells us, and dwelt among us, tabernacled among us, and we beheld his glory. We saw it. How do you see glory? How do you even see the sun? One person asked, how do you even look at the sun? If you look at the sun long enough, what happens? Your eyes melt. All you can see when you see the sun is what? A blur. Just a blur. Unless you do what? You put sunglasses on. You can look at the sun through a telescope with a special filter that doesn't burn your retina out. But you can't even look at the physical glory of the sun without going blind. How do you ever expect to see the glory of the eternal God without being completely destroyed by it. I'll tell you how. Through the filter 
That is Jesus Christ. So now we can look at him and see the glory. But without him, you'll never see the glory of God. You, you understand where we're going here. John is saying, I am testifying to you that Jesus was and is real. Not a myth, not a made-up story, not a cartoon character, not a, 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 a being from another dimension. This is real. We touched him, we saw him, we heard him. Listen, it was more than that. They lived with him for three years. Jesus came personally, he came physically, he also came personally. That which was made manifest. We, we saw him. He was made known to us. The eternal was made mortal. The one who lived forever was now subject to death. The one who created life was now allowing himself to live in a human body and to become human. He didn't just live in skin. He became that skin. He became that body. And that body and that person, that spirit, became sin for us died on a cross, subjected himself to death. He became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. So you don't have to die. We beheld glory. So that we might have life and be set free from our guilt and shame and fear of death. John said, we saw this. John lived with Jesus for three years. Now listen, it's one thing, folks, it's, it's one thing to claim, I'm God. I'll, I'll make that claim to you today. I'm God. But here's what I won't do. I won't say, now come and live with me for three years and I'll prove it. Listen, there are parents, grandparents in here, you are thankful after your kids leave home that they even still think you're a Christian. Because they've lived up close to you, haven't they? My daughter used to have a little friend that lived across the street. She was, didn't grow up in church, but she started coming to the church that I was pastoring and one day she was, her mom told us she was driving past our house and she pointed to our house and she said, Mama, that's where Allison and God live. <laughs> now I will have to say that's the nicest compliment I've ever gotten. But I had three human beings in that house that knew that wasn't true. Because you can't live with somebody for three years who's making a claim to be perfect. Guys, I know sometimes your wife may do that. No, she's not. She, you know, it's hard. She knows she's not. You may think she is. That's great. You know she's not. And she knows you're not. And none of us are. But Jesus was. Perfect. Perfect. Prove it. Okay, come live with me for three years. Watch the miracles I do. 
Watch the people who come to me and those who won't. Watch the, listen, listen to what I'm teaching them. Listen. I, you live with somebody for three years, at some point you're going to have to somehow come into a physical contact with them. You're going you're to have to wake them up from a nap and say, hey, wake up, wake up. We handled him. One of the proofs that, that Jesus gave of his resurrection. And by the way, resurrection is not just, oh, your spirit goes. No, your body is going to be resurrected. This thing that you have a love-hate relationship with today is with you for eternity. Jesus' body was with him for eternity. And when he came back from the grave and a disciple named Thomas said, I don't know if I can believe this. Jesus showed up and said, touch me, Thomas. Put your hands here. Touch my side. See, look, this is where the spear went into me. And stop doubting, but believe. That which we have handled. He came physically. He came personally. He, he said, come and live with me. Come and walk with me. We see him up close through the disciples' lens. The witnesses of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are the witnesses who walked with him for three years. Said, yeah. And all, you know, when all the gospel books were written in the lifetime of the people who knew Jesus historically. Did you know that? If I wanted to change the outcome of history, if I wanted to rewrite the Vietnam War and talk about it being different than it was, I need to make sure that all of those who participated in the Vietnam War are dead. Now I can change history. But not while the witnesses are alive. That's why the Gospels are important. They're the witnesses who saw him while he was alive. They saw these things. And he finally came, pers he came purposefully. That we may have fellowship with him, John said. We want you to have fellowship. How do we have fellowship? You know, uh, Kristen today was, was baptized. She became part of a fellowship, not just a choir fellowship in the back room. She became part of a family. She became part of not just this body. She became part of the body of Christ around the world. What is the body of Christ? Those are the people who have fellowship with Jesus. Those are the people who believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that he came to earth in a physical body, that he died in that body, that he bore our sins in that body, that he came back from the dead in that body. That's your fellowship. That's what bonds us together. We disagree about everything. Can you, you can't get Baptists to agree on anything. I know. I've been one my whole life. Nine months before I was born, I was a Baptist. I guess I'll die one, but we can't get along on anything except Jesus. We come together around Jesus. That's our fellowship. That's what we have in 
common. The word fellowship doesn't mean donuts. It means common. We have something in common. We share something in common, deeply in common. I want you to know the fellowship, and I want you to know the joy that we have. It's with the Father, with the Son, Jesus Christ. He is either, listen, he is either the divine God, the fullness of the Godhead bodily. He is God with us, or else he was, according to C.S. Lewis, he was a self-deceived liar or a deluded lunatic. What do you think he is? He's either the real deal, he's a liar, he's a lunatic. What is he? There's not a fourth, there's not a fourth option. Call him a liar. Call him a lunatic. Or bow before him and call him Lord and God. Let me, and, and this is, I'm, I'm pulling some thoughts together from other people, so please hear me. I want to confront an argument that is offered against Christianity sometimes. Somebody may be listening on Jack's Country today. Somebody here today, maybe you, you know, you're kind of here for a Christmas thing and you just don't even, you know, you're not a church person. So this may be an argument that you've launched against a Christian before yourself, and that is this. You know, there are things that I really like about Christianity, about your religion. You've done some good things. I really like some of those things, and, and I want to believe that it's real. But it's so narrow and so exclusive. And that's a compliment, by the way. Thank you. Uh, yes, it is. Narrow and exclusive. And this is why. Christmas is why. You see, other world religions have systems and practices that if you follow these practices... And, and usually they, they boil down to this. Be kind and don't hurt anybody. Be a nice person, and if you're a nice person, then surely God is one day going, oh, please come home. I want to be surrounded by nice people in heaven, so you're welcome to come and be a part of that number. Just be nice, be moral, and God will certainly accept you. And people are drinking that up around, oh yeah, well that's my religion. My religion is just, I, I, I just do the golden rule. I'm nice, don't hurt people. Good for you. But, but that's like me going to a doctor with pain. I have a problem. And, and the doctor says, well, I, I have a solution. You, you need to, to uh, gargle salt water three times a day and get some rest. You'll be fine. Okay, really? You think, well, that's kind of strange. So you get a second opinion. You go to another doctor. Oh, I'm, no, that's fine. All you got to do is gargle salt water three times a day. Get some rest. You'll be fine. So you do it. You think, well, that's easy enough. Easy peasy. We can do that. I can, I can handle that. But then you meet another doctor, and you're talking to the doctor about these wonderful, open-minded doctors that you've been seeing and what they've told you to do to fix yourself. But this doctor looks at you and says, 
you know, the symptoms you're describing, I need you to understand. You have a very, very, very serious condition. It's terminal. Gargling salt water, getting extra rest, is not going to make that go away. But I have a solution. I have a pill. If you'll take this pill, take it for seven days, the problem will be resolved. Now, you're going, what are you going to do with that? You're going to go, okay, listen. Doctor, I, 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 you know, with respect, sir, I think you are being very narrow-minded in what you're saying. I think for you to reject the opinion of these other doctors without even knowing them and knowing how nice they are is very narrow-minded of you. And so I won't take your medicine. That's where some people are. That's where a lot of people are. Or you're going to at least be smart enough to go, wait. What if this guy's right? And I really do have a terminal condition, and, and that's bad. But the good news is he really does have a solution. But... He's so narrow-minded. He's so, so exclusive. The only way I can be saved is to take this pill. <sighs> no, I think I'll just remain open-minded. Or if you're a smart person, you're going to say, where do I go get it? Well, let me tell you, that's exactly where some of you are spiritually today. Hear me, hear my heart. Jesus is saying to you today, you have a terminal condition. It's called sin. It is eternally terminal. Meaning, you will die forever. Unless you take the only cure for your condition and that is trusting me to cover you with my atoning blood and if you'll do that you'll live forever well how do I get that oh it's free how could it be worth anything if it's free oh it's worth everything I died for it so your guilt can be cured so your fear can be taken away so your shame can be blotted out so you can live forever so let me say again narrow minded yes but if that doctor is right is it really a bad thing to be narrow-minded? If he knows what the cure is, 
would it not be far worse for him to just say, well, I don't want to be, I don't want to sound narrow-minded, so I'm going to just keep it to myself. No, brother, if you're that doctor, let me have it. I want that cure. Jesus said, I'm the only way. I'm the only truth. I'm the only life. No man comes to the Father but by me. You want the cure? You get it through Jesus, nobody else. No other religion, no other God, no other moral system, only in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, you are the King of kings, the Lord of lords, but you are also the bringer of the greatest gift that we need right now, and that is a cure. We need a cure for our condition. We need a cure for the sin that besets us, that, that pulls us down, that destroys our relationships, that destroys our peace and our joy. It leaves us struggling with anxiety and guilt and shame. But you paid it all. In the body that you came in, the, the flesh that you, that you became, so that you could become not just flesh that is a man who walks with us, but that you could become sin for us to bear the Father's wrath on the cross. And there's no other way for us to be saved but through Jesus. So today, Lord, draw those to you who need that cure, who need that salvation that you paid everything to bring to us. For it is in Jesus' name that we pray. I'm going to ask you to stand, and I'm going to ask you to walk forward right now. If you want to be baptized like Kristen, maybe you could do that today. Need to come and to say, I need the cure. I need the, I need the salvation that you bring in Jesus. Come now.